The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans 6. We're going to begin this chapter today and then uh, take a break for, I think, three weeks before we get back into it. Uh, but our text for today is Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. And um, <clears throat> I just have to say that, that I am especially excited. Uh, I, I, I love every passage I get to preach, but, but I'm especially excited to jump into Romans chapter 6. Because um, Romans 6 transformed my view of the Christian life when I was in college. Now, now I grew up in a Christian home, grew up in the church under the sound of the gospel, uh, but when I, when I went to college, I had a pretty good understanding of the gospel indicatives or the gospel truths that we've studied in Romans 1 through 5. So, so I knew that, that I was a sinner. I knew that Christ died for my sins on the cross. I understood that I was justified by faith. I understood, I believed that I was going to heaven someday. And, and so I understood those truths. And I also understood the importance of the imperatives or the commands that are coming in Romans chapters 12 through 15, and as well in the rest of the Bible. I knew that the biblical commands are really important, and so I needed to obey God's will. I knew I needed to live a righteous life, and I knew I needed to love my neighbor. But, but until college, I had never considered how the gospel indicatives in Romans 1 through 5 relate to the commands, the imperatives that are coming in Romans 12 through 15. And, uh, and so I assumed you know, that God saves me by grace and that basically from there I just work really hard to be the best Christian I possibly can be. And then my sophomore year of college, I took a class in the book of Romans. And we came to Romans chapter 6, and, and Romans 6 revolutionized how I understand the Christian life. And, and I understood, for, for the very first time, how the gospel empowers my obedience to God's commands. The, the, the gospel truths, the, the foundational realities of Romans 1 through 5 must drive my obedience to Romans 12 through 15 and every other command in Scripture. And, um, and it was transformative. It was transformational. It was encouraging to put those things together. And, and I've never recovered. And, and I don't plan on recovering either. And, and so I pray that, that for some of you, God is going to use Romans chapter 6 to help you understand what the Christian life is in a way that you never have before. And of course, for many of you that, that have at least some sense of that understanding, or maybe a complete understanding of that, I hope that, that Romans 6 will, will encourage your heart, you know, just expand your view of the Christian life, challenge you, convict you, encourage you, and that we will all walk away determined by the grace of God to, to please the Lord. And so today we're going to just look at verses 1 through 4, and so let's go ahead and read what they have to say. Romans 6, 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? 
Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now now notice that Romans 6 begins with a very important question. Actually, two questions, but really the second one is the more important. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, now that question builds directly off of what Paul just said in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. So, so remember what Paul said there from last week. He says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So so remember from last week that Paul said that the law was powerless to produce salvation. That, That instead of the law bringing salvation to people, in the hands of sinners, all that the law could do was increase the tyranny of sin over our lives. Because we're sinners and and we can't live up to it. But where sin increased, what does he say? Grace abounded all the more. And, And that's a glorious hope, isn't it? That the grace of God is always greater than all of my sin. And that God can save and God can bring to heaven the most wretched, terrible sinner. But, as wonderful as that is... If you are a Jew, and you're listening to what Paul just said in verses 20 and 21, you are utterly dismayed at what Paul is saying. You know, because because the Jews believed, a lot of the Jews at least in Paul's day believed, that they could earn their salvation by obeying the law. And and so, chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, they sound absolutely nuts. And of course, Paul could relate, because Paul had himself once been a Pharisee. He talks in Philippians 3 about how he had gloried in the righteousness that he thought he had achieved through the law. And so so Paul knows exactly what his Jewish readers are going to ask. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, Now, when we hear this question, and when we imagine some Jewish opponent voicing this question, we shouldn't imagine him speaking it in a humble inquisitive, curious sort of tone. No, instead, he is voicing this question with a high degree of sarcasm. So, so he's, what he's saying behind this question are, are a whole host of things. He's saying, Paul, your view of grace is crazy. That's nuts, Paul. That's absurd. And if works don't contribute anything to our salvation... Well, well, then you're making obedience meaningless. What's the point, Paul? That's crazy. And and we know that obedience is important because the Bible's filled with commands. So so your gospel is is absolutely absurd. Now, what a stupid idea that the grace of God is magnified by our sin. If God's grace is magnified in overcoming our sin, then, then you must mean that we should sin more. Why don't we sin more, Paul? Because then God's grace will be magnified more. And you can hear the guy almost laughing as he voices the objection that he raises here in verse 1. 
And of course, this Jewish opponent is not alone. I mean, many legalistic religions would, would look at the gospel of God's free grace and they would say, that's crazy. Because if you give people salvation by grace, then, then you're taking away the biggest carrot to keep people in line, which is fear of eternal torment. If you take away fear of God's judgment, then, then what's the point? What, what power do you have left to drive people to obey? And sadly, you know, people who would voice that sort of objection to the gospel of free grace, they actually could cite many examples of, of professing Christians who have turned the gospel into that very thing. The, uh, the, the free grace movement, for example, has made a, a huge impact in, in dispensational circles like ours. And so, and so the free grace people, they, they emphasize... You know, they emphasize a simple prayer of faith. You know, just, you know, all you need to do to be saved is just believe and, and believe even for a moment. And, and they really want to emphasize the grace of God. And so they also put a huge emphasis on eternal security. You know, you say these words, you're saved, and, and, and nothing can ever take that away. So, so, of course, that's true, right? Nothing can take away genuine salvation. But, but in their effort to emphasize free grace, and eternal security, what oftentimes happens is, is that they deny or they at least minimize the importance of repentance, of confessing the lordship of Christ over the Christian's life, or, or the need for a genuine Christian to change anything about his life. And, and once you're saved, you know, once you have a moment of faith, they're going to say that, that there is nothing that can happen that would ever cause you to doubt your salvation. So, for example, one of the main proponents of this view is, is a man named Zane Hodges, and, and he compares salvation to getting on a commercial jet. You know, so, so you get on a jet, you get on an airplane, like my family did this week, and, and they close that door, they seal up that door, and the plane gets in the air, and once the plane is in the air, it doesn't matter how much you hate that plane, no matter how much you deny the reality of that plane, no matter how much you want to get off that plane. You are stuck on that plane until it lands. And he says in a similar way that once you get saved, you can deny Christ. You can say He doesn't exist. You can say you don't want to be a Christian. You can say you don't want to go to heaven. But you are stuck. And you're going to heaven whether you want to or not. And it's no surprise that many people take Him seriously. And so they use that sort of doctrine of the gospel to mean, well, hey, I got my ticket to heaven. I can do whatever I want now. I've got my ticket out of jail. And, and sadly, it's not just people on that side who, who struggle that way. The, in, in reform circles, there has been a huge swell over the last 20 years or so of people who, who would argue that any effort at holiness, any striving to please God, is necessarily legalistic moralism. And so if you are, you know, if a pastor is emphasizing the commands of Scripture and calling people to obey Him, that then you're just moralizing. And so really what you need to do is not strive for holiness. You just need to believe the gospel more and wait for God to give you a desire for holiness. And if it never comes, then have a good time enjoying the things that you enjoy. I mean, a lot of them really revel in their unholy living. 
I think as well you could look all over American Christianity and you could see a lot of churches that are so focused on having a broad appeal. I mean, they want to get as many people as possible to, to pray a prayer, and so they're really working to, towards lots and lots of decisions. And so they have no stomach to really call people to a life of holiness. And so I've met people. I, I had a counseling meeting just two or three weeks ago with a couple that and they came in my office. They're, they're not people who go to church here. And, and, and so right away, they profess they're Christians. They know Christ. They believe the gospel. You know, but, but so many people are living in, in, in outright immorality, drunkenness, rebellion against God, and they see absolutely no disconnect between saying they are Christians and all of that. I mean, they really think that the grace of God means that they can let sin abound and, and live however they think is right. So, so the question in verse 1 is just as relevant today as it ever has been. And it addresses the core of our faith and our view of the Christian life. And the rest of Romans 6 is going to explain why the assertion of verse 1 is absolutely false. And why every Christian must reject it. And today we're going to just look at verses 3 through 4, uh, 2 through 4, and I want to see three reasons in those verses why the grace of God is not a license to sin. And so first of all, the first reason is that Christians are dead to sin. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, may it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? And I'd like to divide our study of verse 2 up into five answers to the question in verse 1 that Paul does not give. So what does Paul not say? Well, first of all, he doesn't say, yeah, live it up. He doesn't agree with the assertion of verse 1, does he? No, no, instead, he begins verse 1 with a strong denial. He says, may it never be. Or, or you could also translate it, perish the thought. The old King James had a kind of a dynamic equivalent translation, God forbid. And all of those are intended to communicate in, in strong even emotionally charged terms. Absolutely not. If you take the grace of God to, to mean that you are have a license to sin, that is absolutely a false conclusion from what God has said in His Word. There is no room in the theology of the New Testament for a lackadaisical attitude towards a life of obedience and holiness. And then a second thing that Paul does not say is, well, duh, the Bible is filled with commands. Now, I want to emphasize here that Paul could have said that. All right? The Bible is filled with commands, and they are really important. So, so for someone to come along and say, well, well, I just need to believe the gospel more and love Jesus more, and, and, and then you know, whatever comes out of my heart will please him, is baloney. Right? The way we love God, the way we conform to his character is, is laid out for us in the commands of Scripture. So, so the commands of Scripture are very important. But I think it's interesting that Paul does not go after the commands. Instead, he presses towards a deeper, more fundamental gospel issue. And what is it? He says, we are dead to sin. Now, now that is the thesis statement of all of verses 2 through 14. And really, verses 3 through 14 are all just unpacking the significance behind that statement 
that we are dead to sin. Now, as I said last week, when Paul uses sin in the singular throughout the book of Romans, he's not so much focused on acts of sin. You know, like I lost my temper or I disobeyed this rule. No, No, when Paul uses sin in the singular in Romans, he's almost always talking about the reigning power of sin, its dominating effect on, on, on people. So, so we saw when we worked through Romans 1 through 3 that the unbeliever does not just disobey God. No, no instead, sin reigns over his life. It, it blinds him to the truth of God. It makes him hostile towards worshiping and obeying God. And, and he has no choice but to live a life in rebellion against God's will. But what Paul is saying here in in Romans 6, verse 2, is that when I get saved, it's not just that I'm now not going to hell and going to heaven. When I get saved, I become dead to sin. And and so God fundamentally changes my relationship to sin's tyranny. He changes my nature. And and so uh, a third thing that, that Paul does not say here is he does not say you must die for your sins. Now that's important. You know, because Christ already died for them. There's nothing I add to the work of Christ. You know, my effort at holiness does not earn me a place in heaven. No, no, Paul is instead describing my response to what God has already done. And so, a fourth thing I want to emphasize is he does not say you must put sin to death. No, what does he say? He says you are already dead to sin. Not because of something I do, but because Christ broke sin's power the moment I was saved. I am dead to sin. And Paul here uses the analogy of death because, because something that is dead does not have any power over you anymore, right? So like when someone dies, now now we obviously should learn from people who are dead and we read history and Maybe once in a while you can hear your parents' or grandparents' voice in your head even after they're dead and telling you don't do that or do that. But the reality is, is once someone's dead, they can't force you to do anything. They're dead. And the point here is that sin is dead over the Christian. It it no longer has authority or dominion over the life of a Christian. And, And so... Now, now, I want to be clear in saying that, that Christians are still sinners, all right? So, so we still have a sin nature. Galatians 5, 17 says, the flesh or the sin nature lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So, so I still have a sin nature. I still have a, a major battle to fight, and, and oftentimes I fail. Every day I fail. And so 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So being dead to sin does not mean that I am immune to temptation because I very much fall prey to temptation. So so there's no room to get cocky. But but instead, what, what Paul is saying is I must live out my death to sin. And in fact, when he gets to verses 12 through 14, he's going to talk about the fact that we must take all of this gospel truth about what Christ has done and we must put it to, to work. We must not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, is what verse 12 says. But what he's also saying here is that the new birth fundamentally changes my relationship to sin. Once I'm saved, 
I'm now able to reject sin. It only rules in my life if I allow it to do so. So so the fifth thing that Paul does not say is only really spiritual Christians are dead to sin. Now, this is another important one to emphasize because a lot of people miss this. Paul does not say that you're dead to sin if, as a Christian, you then surrender your life to the Lord. He doesn't say you become dead to sin if, if you speak in t- when you speak in tongues. He doesn't say you become dead to sin when you have a post-conversion baptism of the Spirit. A lot of Christians will, will teach that sort of thing, that, that you need some sort of second work in your life that, that ultimately gives you the power to change and become different. No, he assumes that every Christian is dead to sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, so who's in Christ? Every believer. So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. So so once there is nothing more that I need to do other than receive Christ, and I am dead to sin, I am a new creature in Christ. So folks, verse 2 makes a very important point that we must shout from the rooftops. And that is that a Christian pursuing a life of sin defies the fundamental nature of the gospel. And that's the point that Paul's making here. If you think that the grace of God frees you to live a life of sin, you have fundamentally missed the intention of God in saving you. You And and let's say it this way. I mean, Jesus did not die on the cross to pack heaven with as many people as he possibly could. Now, Now, that's sometimes how we think of it. We think it's our job as a church to get as many people as we can to pray so that we can get as many people into heaven as possible. Now, now certainly, all right, 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all will come to repentance. God has a heart to reach all people. But what this verse is saying is that the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the intent of the gospel, is not simply to fill heaven, but to transform lives, to create worshipers of Jesus who glorify Him by by being radically transformed. So God doesn't just justify us when He saves us. He breaks sin's power for the purpose of changing everything about me. So so a couple verses before this one, He says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, For the love of Christ controls us. Speaking there of Christians, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Similar language. And he died for all. Why? Why? So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So why did God save you? Why did God save you? Was he lonely in heaven? No. He's a Trinitarian God. He doesn't need you. He saved you so that you would not live for yourself, but live for him who died and rose again on your behalf. So if anyone uses the free grace of God as an excuse for apathy about holiness and obedience, 
They have not understood the nature of the gospel. God saves that we would not live for ourselves, but for the one who died and rose for us. And then on top of that, I mean, it's just, it is absolutely foolish for for the worldly Christian to, to, to think that, that, that Satan is somehow a better master than Jesus, right? I mean, why in the world would I think, you know, that, that Satan has a better plan for my life than God does? Now, now Satan is a great salesman. I mean, he, he can make the, the most horrible thing look really attractive. But folks, we have to remember that the unbeliever is dead in sin. And, and what Satan, I mean, Satan is not selling something real. He's selling snake oil. Right? And, and to go further, he's selling rat poison. I mean, what Satan is trying to sell you in his temptation is not for your good. Sin is a horrible master. And it is an awesome thing that Christ breaks that power. So, so if you are in Christ, you are free from sin's dominion. So, so don't be a fool and return to its mastery. That's absolutely ludicrous. No, no, see the wonderful new freedom you have in Christ to, to live for something that is better, something of eternal significance. I mean, you are dead to sin, so live for Christ. So praise God that we are dead to sin. And then verses 3 and 4 follow uh, by, by giving a second reason why, uh, well, really, verses 3 and 4 follow with just a beautiful vision of, of what it means that we are dead to sin. And the second reason why, why we must not be slaves of sin is because we are united to Christ. So Paul says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, now this verse uses another analogy to describe the transforming work of the gospel, and that is the analogy of baptism. And it's pretty cool then, as I said earlier, that, that we get to be in this passage the same day that we just did a baptism for, for Luke. And, and verses 3 and 4, these are great verses, but, but I do need to note uh, just at the outset here that they have been the subject of some controversy. So, so for one, uh, some people would, would look at these verses and use them to argue for what's called baptismal regeneration. And that's the idea that we are saved by grace, but the grace of the gospel is applied to us when we receive water baptism. All right, but we know that that can't be what Paul means because he just was very clear in Romans 4 that redemption is applied by faith. It is faith that saves, not baptism. I think as well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. So in Paul's mind, there's a distinction between preaching the gospel, evangelism, and baptism. So, so I think we can, we can reject that. Now, now then, even beyond those who believe in salvation, uh, the, the, the gospel is applied by faith. Uh, there's, there's controversy over whether Paul is talking here about water baptism or spirit baptism. And so a lot of people, uh, a lot of Baptists in particular, would see this passage as primarily describing the symbolism behind water baptism. And so the assumption is, is that, you know, basically, everyone in the, in the early church was baptized if they were saved. The assumption was you got bab- if you got saved, you got baptized almost immediately. And so 
there really is no New Testament category of an unbaptized Christian. Because the assumption was you receive Christ, you get baptized. It's an important first step of discipleship. And, and so it's argued that, that verses 3 and 4 are simply rehearsing the symbolism behind your baptism. And I think that's certainly fair. Uh, and then the others argue uh, that, that Paul here is primarily describing spirit baptism. Since, since verses 3 and 4 sound like they are saying that baptism accomplishes these things, right? I mean, language there seems to very clearly sound like this is not just something that's being symbolized. It sounds like he's talking about something that is happening. And so the Spirit is the one who places us in Christ and places us in His church. And so others would argue that these verses are talking about spirit baptism. Now, now, my take is, and, and we talked about this some back in November on Sunday night, is that there's really no point in, in getting too fussy about that argument. Because what we do in water baptism mirrors the significance of spirit baptism. So, so when I think back to my water baptism, I'm really reflecting on what the Spirit did when I was converted. So when we baptize a new believer... We are illustrating a work that the Holy Spirit has already done in that person's life. Now, now verse 4 is going to tease out that symbolism more. But for now, notice in verse 3 that the Spirit's fundamental work. What is it that the Spirit does above anything else when I am born again? Well, it is that He places us in Christ. We are baptized into Christ Jesus. And, and we typically call that union with Christ. Now, over the last few years, union with Christ has become my favorite doctrine. I don't know if you've ever thought about what's, what's your favorite doctrine, but union with Christ is my favorite doctrine. And, and the reason for that is, is that union with Christ is the fundamental work of the gospel. And everything that I have as a Christian comes to me in Christ. So, so the Spirit places me in Christ when I am saved, and when I am united with Christ, it is because I'm in Christ that I'm justified, because I stand in His righteousness. It's because I'm in Christ that I'm redeemed. It's because I'm in Christ that, that I can be sanctified. It's because I'm in Christ that I'm adopted. So everything comes to me in Christ. And, and not just that, union with Christ is, is a beautiful picture. It paints a wonderful image of, of what the gospel really is. You know, specifically, as a child, and you know, kids, you know, just, it takes time to grow and mature, but, so I don't think anyone made an error here, but as a child, you know, I thought of salvation as a transaction. So, you know, I said some words to God, and because I said some words to God, He gave me heaven, justification, all this cool stuff. So say your words, get a bunch of blessing. Forgiveness, justification, so forth. But, but the New Testament teaches that Christ himself is the fundamental blessing of the gospel. I mean, when I got saved, I didn't just get a home in heaven. I didn't just get forgiveness or, or all those other wonderful things. No, when, when I was born again, what happened above everything else is I came into relationship with Christ. That's why I, I, I think the best way to describe, uh, do, you know, when, when I give gospel invitations, I, I like to emphasize receive 
Christ. Because that's fundamentally what happens. I receive a Savior. And the fact that I come into relationship with a person when I get saved, it it radically transforms how I think about the gospel and what my life afterwards should look like. And specifically, the fact that I'm united to Christ, it, it radically transforms how I think about sin and my relationship to sin. You know, let me illustrate it for you this way. You know, let's suppose after church today, I go to some little ma and pa bakery shop and, and I buy a loaf of bread. And, and this baker, he has invested a lot of energy and artistry and care into baking me a loaf of bread. And so I give him five bucks or whatever that loaf of bread costs and I walk out of the store and when I walk out of that store, my, I don't have any sort of ongoing relationship with that baker, Right? I paid for the bread, it's mine. So if I want to go out and feed to the birds, I can. Or if I want to cherish every bite of that bread, I can do that too. All right, but, but let's say, on the other hand, all right, now my wife's out of town, but let's say, you know, one day I come home from work and my wife has spent a couple hours kneading dough and making me a special loaf of bread. And, and I grab that loaf of bread and I walk out to our chicken house and throw it in the chicken house. That's a problem, right? That's a big problem. All right, and there's a relationship that I have with the baker in that point that transforms what I do with the thing that she has given me. And similarly, when I got saved, I didn't just make a transaction with God. When I got saved, I entered into a relationship with His Holy Son. I was spirit-baptized into Christ. So anyone who thinks that he is free to do whatever he wants with the grace of God has fundamentally misunderstood what the gospel is. I mean, I am dead to sin. And there is an intention to that death that is to be radically transformative. I am united to Christ. That's a precious thing. It's a wonderful thing. And it is full of significance and encouragement. And then verses 3 and 4 proceed to say that I'm not just united to Christ's legal righteousness. No, rather, I am united to His death and resurrection in a very practical way. And so the third reason why we must not live a life of sin is because we have been united to a new power and a new direction. So, so, um, so, so look again at verses 3 and 4. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, now these verses, they are crucial to the Christian life because they say that when Jesus died and rose again, he, He didn't just deal with the legal penalty for my sin. He didn't just provide for my justification. No, He also broke sin's reigning power over my life. And so he says, look at what he says in verse 10. He says in verse 10, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, 
he lives to God. And so when I am united to Christ, when I get saved and I'm united to him, I'm united to every aspect of this powerful victory. So, verse 3 concludes that we have been, and I think in the ultimate sense, spirit-baptized into his death. So, what's that mean? Well, it means that before I was saved, I lived under the dominion of sin. I got saved when I was six years old, so that didn't manifest itself in any incredible way. You know, but, but before I was saved, before you were saved, you were under the dominion of sin. You were spiritually blind. You lived for yourself. You were hostile to God. But the moment I was united to Christ, my old life died with Jesus. It died. I'm not the same person I once was. My, my old life is dead. And in fact, verse 4 adds that I was also united with Christ's burial. It says we have been buried with Him. And, and within the, the gospel story, the significance of the burial of Christ is that His burial confirmed that He was dead. So, you don't bury people who are alive. So, so the fact that Jesus was buried confirms that He wasn't just asleep. You know, this wasn't just a, you know, a, a little you know, trick that He played. He really was dead. And so, the fact that, that my Old life is buried with Christ. The, the point there is that it is absolutely dead. It's dead. There's no question. The old life didn't just kind of fall asleep. It's not just playing a trick. It is buried with Christ. It is dead. And, 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 but thankfully, Christ didn't just die, right? No, He rose from the dead. And, and verse 4 says, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Isn't that interesting how he says that? He was raised through the glory of the Father. I like how John Murray explains the significance of that. He says, The Father's majesty or perfection in its fullness is conceived as operative in the resurrection of Christ. And in that event, this expression, more than any other in the New Testament, would signalize the redemptive, vindicatory, and revelatory significance of the Father's act in raising Christ from the, death, from the dead. The plenitude of the Father's glory is manifest in the resurrection of His own Son. So, so what Murray is saying there, and, and I think reflecting what Paul is saying here, is that Jesus didn't just raise from the dead. Whoopee! You know, He's back to life again. What he's saying there is that when Christ raised from the dead, when, when the Father raised from Jesus from the dead, His glory was manifest. Because He didn't just raise a human body. He shattered death's power over humanity. And in so doing, He display, displayed incredible glory. And, and, so, and, and it's not just that He raised Christ and defeated death. He also made that resurrection of life available to all who are in Christ. And I want to emphasize again that this new life is not just about going to heaven. It changes everything about me. So again, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, that's union with Christ. Who's that describe? It describes every genuine believer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So, so I am something totally different in Christ. 
And I always like to emphasize then that when we baptize someone, that baptism symbolizes this incredible union with Christ. That when we dip a body, a person, not a body, just dead bodies, when we dip a person in the water, it symbolizes the fact that their old life is dead and buried with Christ. They're leaving that behind. And they are raised to walk in newness of life. And so, you know, when someone gets baptized, it's not just a cute little ritual that we do as Christians. You know, a time to take pictures and, you know, that, and it's good. We should celebrate it. But when someone gets baptized, it really is a sober declaration that I belong to Jesus. And, and I have left my old life behind. Christ has transformed who I am. And I'm going to serve him. It is a powerful, powerful statement. So, so as a college student, when, when I began to appreciate what Paul is saying in Romans 6, it transformed my understanding of what the gospel is and what Christ's intention in my life is. You know, and, 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 and it showed me you know, just you know, what, what God did for me in, in such fuller depth than I had ever understood for me before and it transformed my view of the Christian life. And when you really understand what, what God is saying in this chapter, it, it makes the question of verse 1 absolutely absurd. It is absurd to think that, that the gospel is only intended to rescue you from hell, and so now I can do whatever I want. And, and so because of that, it, it just it, it frustrates me so much, so much, when people water the gospel down to just saying a quick little prayer so that you don't go to hell. It frustrates me when people you know, turn getting saved into a passing emotion. You know, are you a Christian? Yeah, I, I felt God. I was in this service. It was emotional. I just felt Jesus come on me. And then it has no consequence for the rest of the life. It frustrates me when, when, when you know, just a sheepish little Stick the hand up and pull it back down. Yeah, you're going to heaven. Praise God. And don't ever worry about it ever again. Because that's not the gospel. I mean, being born again is about entering into a glorious relationship with a person that transforms everything about me. And Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. Now, now is he talking here about some decision he made, you know, five years after he got saved? No. He's talking about union with Christ. Same language that we see in Romans 6 verse 3. I am crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And folks, that is an incredible verse of Scripture. And union with Christ is so transformative that, that Paul can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And he's taken over. He has taken over the controls. And it all stems from 
my union with him in the regeneration. And so because of that, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 can say, no one who is born of God. Now, what's it mean to be born of God? That's to be born again, right? So that's every Christian. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, Christ, abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, now Paul, or excuse me, John, John does not mean by that that Christians cannot sin. In fact, he said in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 10, that if you think that you are sinless, you are deceived, and frankly, you probably don't really understand the gospel. So, so Paul, John, John does not mean that, that Christians do not sin there. We have a sin nature. We all have a long ways to go. But, but this verse says that the seed of Christ abiding in us transforms my relationship to sin. Transforms it. And I have a brand new power, and I have an entirely new direction. Now, I'll develop all of this much more as we continue through the rest of the chapter, uh, Lord willing, in the month of January. But, but I hope we can all see that turning the grace of God into a license to sin, into a license to be apathetic about holiness and worldliness, it is a terrible abuse of God's grace. If someone, and so if, if we leave this, this aspect out of our gospel presentations, we are distorting what the gospel is. Now, now it's true that, that this is the part of the gospel that is a little bit harder for someone to grasp. And if someone is dead in sin, life in Christ transformed, that verse doesn't necessarily sound all that appealing. But when you receive Christ, I mean, what is more incredible than entering into union with Christ? I am in Him. And this fact gives so much hope as, as I approach my Christian life. I mean, look at how Paul ends the section in Romans 6, verse 14. He says to the believer, sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under grace, or you are not under law, but under grace. Christian, sin will not be master over you. Christ is able, so I can overcome, and I will overcome. So, so Christian, rejoice in your union with Christ, and be encouraged in your battle with sin, and then commit to engage the battle. Yeah, because every sin you commit is an offense against your union with Christ. You have a, a, an intimate, and Christ is with you, the Spirit is with you at all times. So every sin I commit is an offense against my union with Him. So resist it firm to the end. But do so not just in the strength of your will, but with a conscious awareness that I am in Christ and I overcome by the grace and the strength of Jesus. And then keep going. Fight with hope and confidence. And if you have never been saved, then, then you can receive Christ today. You just simply put your faith in Christ. You receive Him. You, you enter into a relationship with Him. And, and yes, Jesus demands everything. He demands everything. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And if you don't like that, then, then you don't yet appreciate who Jesus is. But, but Jesus also invites the unbeliever in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now, is a yoke, I mean, what's a yoke symbolize? Well, it symbolizes work. It symbolizes duty. It symbolizes obligation. But he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and rest. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who Christ is. We thank you for the relationship that we have with him. We thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, that if there's any here that do not know Jesus as Savior, that today they would seek out someone and, and be saved. And I pray for those of us that know you as Savior, that, Lord, we would live every day conscious of our union with Christ, celebrating the grace that we have in him, and help us to do battle with sin with confidence and with hope and with conviction because we are confident not in ourselves but in Jesus. And so give us the strength to do just that. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And God, help us to do it all in the strength and the power of our Savior. In Christ's name, amen.